Absolutely. I'm allowed to talk shit about my partner. Yes. You <laughs> are not. If you look at kids from families in which their parents were fighting in front of them, they actually fare better after the divorce. There's a lot more attention being paid to the idea of a good divorce. We don't have that data yet. What do you mean? You live with them. You are not my best friend anymore. <laughs> On days when we receive and provide support to our partner, that's when our negative mood is lowest. I was in my grandma's arms in the front seat of the car. I turned out fine. <laughs> I'm not gonna drink. And they're like, well, drinking can be fun. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Primary Care. I'm your host, Dr. Hendricks. This episode of Primary Care is sponsored by Rougiette Health. More than just an ED treatment. Welcome. Thanks. I'm Dr. Marcy Gleason. I'm a PhD in social psychology, and I'm a professor at UT Austin in the Human Development and Family Sciences Department. And I study couples and how they cope with stress and social support. I, I grew up in a household where there was a lot of arguing, a lot. My stepdad was an alcoholic, which catalyst for a lot of arguments. My stepdad sometimes would throw things, which would be really shocking for me. And so I still have some trauma with arguing a little bit. And so I really hate it, <laughs> even though my partner would probably be like, are you sure you hate it? <laughs> because I, I feel like I start it most of the time. Do you ever um, include much about like whether or not kids are involved with the arguing and how they respond? Actually, I think this is a great point. I haven't particularly done work on this, sure. but there is plenty of work on it. And parents fighting in front of children is terrible for kids. Yeah. Um, it's just not good for them. Now, children seeing parents engage in problem solving, have a disagreement, have an argument, that's okay, right? Yeah. But but how we want to qualify, I can't like say exactly, but like but the fighting, you know, if you're yelling at your partner and calling them names and throwing things around your children, it has very negative repercussions mm -hmm. for the kids. They see that from very young age, right? Like even babies kind of thing, like having that kind of environment around them, right? And then having that tense intenseness, the, the tension that can result when those really big fights haven't been resolved. And most people, when they're in that kind of argument with somebody, can't just turn around and be supportive and kind to their child, right? Exactly. They're snapping at their child. They're mm -hmm. like little things that don't normally upset the parent will upset them. You know, this, so it transfers in that way too, right? Where the, so it's not just that the child is seeing it, but a lot of times they're going to be then experiencing some of that anger coming over onto them, even if it doesn't result in emotional or physical abuse to either the partner or the child. Just that is not good for children. Now, you know, if, if their parents listening to this and they're like, oh no, you know, <laughs> like, no, right. It, like right. it's it's highly unlikely that this is happening on occasion. It's going to be terrible. But being in a situation in where it's fairly consistent right. is, is problematic. And in fact, the research on divorce, what we see is on average, kids of divorce fare less well on some measures, you know, and there's debate about this, sure, right? But sure. academics, social behavioral problems, other things tend to on average be higher in kids whose parents have divorced. Yeah. Now that on average is, it's such a big deal, right? Because sure. it means that, like there are plenty of kids of parents who are divorced who are doing better than kids whose parents didn't, yeah. you know what I mean? Like there's so much variability around that, right? But if we're just going to take, you know, the mean, yeah. but this is completely moderated by whether or not the parents' relationship was highly conflictual and whether yes. that conflict was known to the children. Sure. So if you look at kids from families in which their parents were fighting and fighting in front of them, they actually fare better 
after the divorce, mm. right? Because the divorce is actually getting them out of that, that of that conflict. However, the majority of divorces are not actually in high conflict couples. Right. Most couples aren't that high conflict. To, I mean, there's a fair number. Sure, don't get sure. me wrong, but like, yeah. but the majority. Let's say it's like 60, 40 or something, but like 60 yeah. percent aren't. I would say too. My mom, when she got divorced from my stepdad, they were actually at a non-high conflict period of their relationship, which is interesting that you say that because they had had so many kind of crazy periods. And and so when they decided to, I mean, there was a catalyst that was crazy, but they had kind of been in a, a lull for a minute. I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, no, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, and I will say that the research doesn't even get into that kind of complication, right? right? right. Of like, <laughs> so oh, they were conflictual, <laughs> now they're not. And then, It's a lot of confounding um, factors. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, right? It's that I study these things and it's so complicated, right? right? Like human behavior and humans are so much harder to study than, you know, pretty much anything else, yeah, right? That's, that's like what it's, makes it so great. It, it does, but it also means I'm always being like, well, caveat this, and like, right. well, maybe in, in this study, and these people say this, but... Um, so you sound like a physician, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, I guess, I guess, although I feel like you guys are, you know, it's like, I gave you this drug, I didn't give you this drug, right, what happened, true. right? And like, and it doesn't quite, true. it's not quite as simple as that for you either, but it's, but yes, um, for sure. But those families that didn't have a lot of conflict before the divorce, those right. kids fare worse. And one of the also interesting things about this, and I think that this is one of the really positive things that we might, I'm hoping that this movement for more, uh, less conflictual divorce and like cooperation parents, I think we are seeing more of that, right? Where divorce, where parents are working really hard to not have the divorce negatively impact their kids. Mm -hmm. Now, the fact is, is it still often does. The thing is, is that these lower conflict couples Oftentimes, the divorce brings out a lot of conflict, mm -hmm. right? So couples, the kids were like, man, my parents are fine, right? Yeah, right. And then their parents are getting divorced and they're arguing and fighting and like bringing the kids into it and this kind of thing. And it can be really, you know, so kids that weren't exposed to that are now they thought it, you know, they weren't being exposed to that conflict or being exposed to it in the in mm -hmm. the divorce. And so I think that as there's more attention paid to this and divorce is, you know, more socially accepted and mm -hmm. people are thinking about it more and there are more adults who grew up in divorce with divorced parents, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot more attention to being paid to the idea of a good divorce. You know, we don't have that data yet. You know, what we have are, you know, largely what I was just talking about. And, and I think it'll be interesting to see what happens yeah. in the future with this research as to whether you know, there's even more sort of nuance that we have to think about and ways that, you know, we can mitigate this and have good outcomes. When my mom got married to my stepdad, I was eight years old, and I don't want to sound like it was a horrible experience having him as a stepdad. He was incredible. He helped us uh, achieve life goals. We had a, a great, I had a great upbringing because of him, you know, especially financially. He paid for me to go to private school where I got a great education. We had a beautiful home with a pool and, you know, so, so many things that were wonderful. We on great vacations. We had a good relationship overall. Um, but because I had seen so much of their arguing as I got older, I think when I was like 15 or 16, I realized at that point, their relationship wasn't going to last. It was just constant trauma. And it was maybe not all the time, you know, we'd go sometimes a year where everything would be great, but then something big would happen and then it would be a lot. And so I remember being 16 years old. And I think this actually is when I started to realize how much of a planner I was and how I always was trying to strategize for my own safety and environment. Those things started to really be important to me and I started to feel as though they could be at risk. So I remember telling my mom, I'm like, you need to you need to buy a condo and tell 
Eric, it's for an investment and that you have it. So when you guys get divorced, you have somewhere to go. I was 16. I was already helping her plan this out. We actually went and saw one. And I said, you should tell him that it's for my college. So this is where I'll live. We can use it as an investment home, but this isn't going to work for you. This is, this is horrible what you're doing to yourself. Cause I'm about to leave. I'm going to turn 18 and I'm gone and I'm, I'll still be with you. I'm not like gone forever, but I'm not even going to get to watch what's going on here. And I'm going to be scared for what's happening. And of course she didn't take my advice, but my advice was right at 16. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I just, I, I took that with me and, and really planned for my future when they ended up getting divorced that, that six months later I applied for medical school because I said, I have to support my mom. I have to support myself. I don't know what I'm going to do. Um, I knew I wanted to be in medicine, but I didn't know, you know, how fast I needed to get there. And that was really what catapulted me. There was that trauma. And so there's obviously a lot of negativity that I experienced growing up, but I feel like it also created the person that I am and I'm really starting to love myself. And so I'm happy that it all happened, but you know, I think we can learn from maybe not having to put kids through that trauma. And there's actually a, a TV show I've been watching. I'm not sure if you've heard of it before. It's a kid's show for really young kids on Disney channel called Bluey. I've heard of it. I haven't seen it, but my friends who still have really young ends, they love that their kids love it. Their kids love it. They love it. I'm obsessed. So I don't even have kids. And I, I, uh, actually it's a Australian produced uh, company, the production company is from Australia, and so I guess Disney purchased the rights to it in the United States. But it is very good at explaining to other parents how to be a good parent. At least in my perspective, I'm not a parent, so please don't come at me. But one of the things I want to bring it up for is because in one of the episodes, the parents get into an argument and the kids are watching them argue. And then the mom says, I need 20 minutes. And she goes to her room for 20 minutes and closes the door. And so the dad then explains that they had an argument. Sometimes adults have arguments just like you and your brother and sister do. Sometimes we need to take time to breathe and your mom is having a 20 minute. And so they really normalize this 20 minute session that the mom is having. The neighbor comes over and asks where the mom is and the kids are like, oh, she can't come out. She's having her 20 minutes. And the neighbor's like 20 minutes and then the dad's like yeah you know and then they they kind of just normalize that arguing is an important part of a relationship but it's how you present it to your kids it's how you explain it to them so that they also know it's normal they also still feel safe mom has gone for 20 minutes but she'll be right back dad's not going anywhere and it's still a safe home and i think and i just watched this like two days ago so it's so random that this is what we're talking about today but um I'm also a big Bluey fan now <laughs> because yes, I learned a lot of other amazing. things. I, I might have to like show that clip in my uh, class. Cause, so there's this conflict tactic that's known as like demand withdrawal, right? And that there's these patterns in couples in which one person tends to be demanding, sure. right? And the other person in response to the demand withdraws, right? And that can they can withdraw like right in front of you where they just stop responding or they right. can leave. But they basically just won't engage in the discussion in mm. some way. And largely... We see it has negative associations. There's there's some argument about situations in which it might not. But that is very different from... So people think, like, I can't, you know, so so if they hear this, there's also people talk about it as stonewalling, like, you know, just yes. not allowing the conversation to continue. They do tend to be negative patterns. But that isn't what was happening there, right? right. Because that wasn't, I refuse to talk to you about this, right. or I'm ignoring you, or I need a break, yes. right? Like, let us come back to this yes. in a little while, 
or in a little while, let's decide when we're going to come back to it. But, you know, essentially what that is, is the adult saying, like, I'm putting myself in time out. Right. Yes. And this is actually so what my understanding, I'm not a, a, a parenting expert or a child development expert. Those are my colleagues, but I hang sure. out with them, <laughs> picked up a few things. And one of my colleagues, was, you know, said, like, you know, time out in parenting. Are you familiar with this? Concept? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. I had many of those. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and there are effective ways to use sure. it and less effective ways to use it. And a lot of times people think like, oh, it's the punishment. Like the kid did something wrong, put the kid in timeout, right? And that's really not what it's supposed to be, right? Mm -hmm. It's about the idea of, okay, this isn't going the way we want it to be going. We need to do some regulation. We need to (laughs) have some separation. We need some time. You know, and putting the child in timeout isn't about punishing them for the behavior. It's about removing them from a situation and giving them time to like downregulate, to like, you know, breathe. Yeah, to breathe and do these things. And it's really hard, right? Because Mm. when you're really mad at your brother or sister, right? (laughs) Like, you don't want to go sit in your room and think about it or whatever. And, And honestly, Sitting and thinking about it may not, is really not the way to go, right? It's really like, yeah, particularly young children, just they need to be removed from the situation and distracted and have a chance to emotionally regulate. And then maybe we can talk about it later, you know, and talk about what went wrong. The idea that, yes, locking your partner out or like walking out and slamming the door that's negative, right? Yeah. But saying like I'm overwhelmed, mm-hmm. like I like this argument is not constructive for me. I need to step away from it. Right, is a really reasonable request, right? Now, yeah. if they don't come back and engage at some point in time, I think that then you know then it's a problem. But you can use it really effectively. And having kids see that model, yes, and also having them do it, right? Yeah. It's just so valuable. I mean, people do this all the time, right? Like you know, how many people? Have written you know and you hear people doing this like angry emails they're never going to send right like it's just you just write your angry email (laughs) and then and then you you know and then you delete it or you put it in your dress and you never put the person's address in the two place don't i actually have a new strategy for mine so i don't know if you've heard of like the ai open ai where you can like put in and they'll create a document for you so i'll ask it to create like an angry letter to someone and then i'll like have them create it and then i'll have them regenerate it like a few times so i can see it written a few times and then i'll i know this is i'm psycho but (laughs) i i get my point across three two or three times and i'm like I didn't send the message. Me and a- OpenAI had a moment, and I'm ready to move on. That is amazing. So what I would actually say that what you are doing is that you have taken <laughs> OpenAI and turned it into a support provider for the kind of support that you want, right? Because what you just described is like, let's say that you and your partner do have an argument that you're still annoyed with, right? Sure. Like that that you are hanging on to a little bit, or you know, maybe not even hanging on to it, but it just does like. It's going to bug you again, right? And you go out to lunch with your best friend and you complain about your partner, right? Like you... You complain about your partner. You you say some things about them, and oftentimes you'll be like, "But they're great, and I love yeah. them, and it's fine," you know, because you want your best friend to know that. Like, but you get to complain about them. Yes. So often after people do this, and their and their best friend is like, "Oh, it's so annoying, right?" Like, yes. "Oh, I'm. Oh, how can you stand that? I could not take it." Oftentimes, what you'll end up being like, "It's not that bad." Exactly. Right? Because like, I'm allowed to talk. Oh, my God. Uh, are we allowed to swear? Yes, okay. I'm allowed to talk shit about my partner. Yes. You <laughs> are not. not. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you know, and as a friend, this is a very hard thing to navigate, it right? Because, like, difficult. Because also, if my best friend is like, that doesn't sound that annoying, I'll be like, 
What do you mean? You live with him. You are not my best friend anymore, right? Like there, like, and this takes me back to support research, which is that support is incredibly hard to give, yes, right? Because is. that's the thing. It's like if I say. Oh, that's not annoying, right. you know. Oh, maybe get you know. Are you sure that you should be mad about this? Like, oh, think about what your partner's perspective or whatever. Like, there are times where you might be receptive to this, but often it is just going to bug you that yes. I am like defending your partner. But if I take your side too much, you're going to be like, hey, don't be exactly. saying bad things about my partner. So what am I supposed to do? And how is this support supposed to help you? It's really hard. Now, think about your partner. Let's yeah. say you're going to your partner and being like, oh, I'm so frustrated by this thing that's happening at you know the podcasting yeah. studio. <laughs> I'm sure nothing negative happens here. It's very nice. The people here are very nice. They but, are. You know, and you come home and you're like, they did blah, 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 blah. You know? right. And your partner's like, I don't know, it sounds like you're kind of in the wrong here. <laughs> You'd be like, this is not going to go, like that's right. not probably what you're, you're exactly. looking for your partner to exactly. do, right? Or um, the thing that we all like to do apparently um, is give advice and your partner's like, this is what you should do. And oftentimes that is not right. what we want. And there's a stereotype that men do want that. They want, they want direct practical help. We do not see any evidence of that in the I data, right? Neither men or women <laughs> tend to want advice as no. their like primary source of support from their partner. There are times where we want advice. We tend to ask for it though. Yeah. What do you advise I do in this situation, <laughs> right? But when I'm just telling you about something that's driving me crazy, it's probably not what I'm looking for. Right. At the same time, if they are also start sort of like being like, "Yeah, that place is terrible. You should quit." We'll often be like, "Well, it's not like they're not that." You know what right. I mean? Like that's we do the same thing. Yeah. What well, we're really looking for something that's like kind of in the middle, and there's exactly. no perfect answer because we're upset, and really, all oftentimes what we're doing is just. We're looking for understanding, yep. and it can be hard for partners to convey that understanding effectively. So I think a lot of times, when as partners, we just have to think like, I should just make it clear I'm listening, and I and like that yeah. sounds hard. Yeah, right? it's, it's it's funny you mention that because I have a few friends that the very little that I hear about their partner is negative because they're complaining to me because they're venting, which is totally fair. But I have this now negative perception of who their partner is because that's all I've ever heard. And so it really makes it difficult for me to become friends with their partner or to even try to relate with their partner. Sometimes I don't even trust their partner because of the things that I've heard. And I'm, it's difficult for me too because I, I can think of a very specific incidence where I'm like, I don't want you, I want to tell this person, I don't want you to talk to me about your partner anymore because I can't help you. <laughs> you know, like I don't know. And it's hurting me. It's actually, as a friend, you're, you're making it harder on me to be your friend. And I'm sure there's people out there that can relate to that, especially, you know, most of us like to vent to our friends and, and most of us are the the uh, actors and leads in our own lives. And so we have a lot to say and, and you want your friend to you know be there for you. But I struggle with being there for people when they talk about their relationship and which is why I usually never talk about mine with other people. So open AI is very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> hey folks, my podcast Primary Care is sponsored by Rougiette Ready, the latest pharmaceutical advancement in erectile dysfunction. This is a sublingual compounded treatment using three ingredients, sildenafil, tadalafil, and apomorphine. And it works up to five times faster than pills and chewables. We give you a promo code primary care for 20% off your first order and free shipping. Now let's get back to uh, the content. All right. So there's a couple of things I want one to go back to yeah. what I was saying about social support research 
way back. So when I was saying that, like, they found all this positivity around being somebody who's socially supported. Mm -hmm. But when we actually look at instances of social support, we often find that it's not linked to positive mood. If I say at the end of the day that, like, my partner gave me emotional support, I will often report worse mood on that day than Mm. I do on a day when I don't report that, even if I'm indicating the same level of stressors. And we've done this in some, there's been some experimental work on this. So it seems like social support in at the time it's given is not nearly as effective as it is. as like kind of a global idea, right? And I think part of this is, is that, like, what we're just talking about, like, it's really hard to receive that support and for it to be the support we're looking for and for it to be effective. particularly at that moment when we're upset Mm -hmm. right but then maybe later we can kind of come back to what somebody said you know what our partner recommended and that we're more able to take that information in when we're not actually upset about it and it's good that we have it right because also if we don't talk to our partner about it when we're upset there's a good chance we'll never talk to them about it and then we just become disconnected right like telling our partners about what's upsetting us uh, in our lives or what we're struggling with or what venting to our partner these are these are bonding things and what we actually do see is that you might not feel less anxious Mm -hmm. but you report more relationship satisfaction Mm. when it's in an experiment and it's a stranger doing it you like the stranger more so even though the stranger just made you more anxious you like them more than if they didn't make you more anxious right because showing that you care and like being engaged with people is so important and that's like that's those social bonds and that's really what i think those global social support measures are getting at right like do i have people who will be there for me exactly even if sometimes being there for me is annoying right like they're being annoying but like you know (laughs) down the road I will probably be able to accept that more and certainly I think as support providers we can all work on doing uh, being better at providing it but you know there is this sort of double-edged sword to support vision my work in particular actually though shows that one way to kind of make social support more palatable to the person receiving it is if both people are venting and getting and receiving social support, if we have an exchange of social support, that tends to be more beneficial, right? And I think it also, like, if you're venting about your partner and your friend is venting about your partner, it's easier for you to be like, oh, I know they don't, like, their partner's not bad, just like my partner's not bad. And, like, you know, it can help with that kind of thing, too, right? right? right. I see this in my data that on days when we receive and provide support to our partner, that's when our negative mood is lowest. Hmm. And so there really seems to be something beneficial about like an exchange of support. Now, what I don't know, and I would say in the way that I study this, is I don't know that that's happening in the same conversation or anything like that. But I think it's just the idea of like, hey, we're we're doing this together, right? right. Like we're both finding each other useful in this discussion and, and helping each other, like helping each other through it. And like, and it bonds us. Like we are social creatures. We have always lived in groups, right? right. The worst thing that can happen to a person is to be kicked out of the group, whether it be a group of two or a group of many, right? We are generally, people are very, very afraid of rejection and rejection really hurts and is really upsetting, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's really great to feel needed, right? Mm -hmm. And so we tend to really like giving support, right? People are, particularly Americans, I think, but in general, I think it goes beyond America, are often hesitant to ask for help because we don't want to be a burden to people. And what... And certainly if you're always asking for help and you're not changing anything and you're, you know, it sounds to me kind of in this situation that your friend is kind of coming to you and talking about their partner and yeah. and they're always in that place and they're not doing anything to change it. And it's like, it's like a bottomless void or something. It's like <laughs> you're pouring care and understanding into something and it, there's no bottom, right? right. Like the, it's exactly. just more care that you have to get. <laughs> and that 
is not great, right? right. Like that is not a great situation. But and, and that's not good for the caregiver. But in general, we like to we, we like to give support, right? Yeah. Like it means that our friends and our partners and our family members value us yeah. and need us and they're not gonna kick us out. Yes. Right? Yes. We have value in this group. Mm-hmm. They need me. Exactly. Therefore I get to stay and be in my and be in my group. And that's just incredibly important, I think, to us as as people. And then having that safety net that, oh, I have somebody who will be there for me when I'm struggling, you know, that idea that when I know that support's available to me, how beneficial that is. I just think it's, you know, again, it's like, oh, I can go out and explore the world. I can do these things. I feel confident that somebody's going to be there for me when I do it. And, And that, I think, is, you know, it's the other side of the coin. It's just that the actual instances of them being there are kind of hard. The example I give to my students all the time is like, it's great to know that if things don't work out after college, you could move into your parents' basement. (laughs) It's less great to do it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Right? Right. Now, there's the complicating factor of like, things aren't working out well, right? But also, it's like, we want to know the safety net is there. We don't want to necessarily have to activate the safety net, Mm -hmm. right? Particularly in big things. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think I am a huge huge safety net person. I try to have safety nets behind my safety nets, above my safety nets, below my safety nets. I think that too comes from just a little bit of the trauma that I experienced growing up in a kind of a traumatic household. And, and uh, But again, I, I hate saying that because I think my mom did an excellent job raising me and she found a partner who she really loved and supported and was like, you know, ride or die. She was by his side. And so there's so much to say and, and um, to appreciate with that. And she really wanted to help him through his alcoholism. And sometimes, you know, those things just don't go according to plan. So I, I hate referring to my childhood as, as bad anyway, because it was not. But it did just sort of make me feel like I needed to be prepared. And even now, you know, my, uh, unfortunately, after my parents got, uh, my mom and Sarah got divorced, they had to sell all the, the home, they had to sell all their things, and there was really no money left. And so, um, you know, I became kind of the breadwinner for my mom, which she was always my savior. Net. I always knew that ultimately she would have my back and she does in many ways, just not financially anymore. That's my job now. And so it's just weird. Even now at, you know, almost 33 years old, I always grew up feeling like I could make a mistake and have a place to live and, and have a, a, you know, a shelter. But now I am that shelter. So it's it's interesting how things can change as we get older, you know, and, and some of those safety nets get moved around. But it also helps you, I think, become a, a bit stronger and, and kind of deal with things a little bit differently. Yes, I think that that's very true. And I think that you are experiencing something that is really hard at 16 and even as a young adult, which is, you know, in some ways acting as a parent to your parent, um, which a lot of us do as we age and our parents age, right? Like, but it's not necessarily common to be doing it at the age that you were doing it. And that is traumatic and and difficult yeah but i also want to say that like yes what you're saying about like my mom was amazing and i had a great childhood in many ways in the same way that when we want to vent about our partners (laughs) and talk about how they're terrible it's like nothing is one thing or like very few situations are all one thing or all another and and we are the sum of our part like of our our past and there's going to be good and bad there and you know and you can have kids who grow up in the same household and have very different experiences of it and very different outcomes from it. So like so much of it isn't that predictable. But one of the things that you were saying that just also reminds me of um, one of the things I try to do with my classes, a lot of parents in the United States, majority use corporal punishment or, you know, Mm -hmm. physical punishment of their kids. And all of the research suggests that this is 
ineffective. Right. Right. Not only ineffective in stopping the behavior, but really detrimental for the kid's relationship with their parents, can increase bad behaviors. Like there's really no evidence that that inflicting pain on children is a good way to change behavior right. um, or cultivate your relationship with them. Right. But a lot of people were grown up, grew up being spanked and they love their parents yeah. and they're great people. So yeah. when I tell them <laughs> like, oh, spanking is related to these negative outcomes, they're like, well, I was spanked exactly. and I turned out fine. And right. I'm like, yeah, you did. You're amazing. You turned out great, right? But like, it's know. not even that I think that them not spanking you, you would have turned out better. It's like, it's this population level thing, right? right? Like it's across the population. If we weren't doing it, we think on average, like people there's a lot of evidence that things would be, people would have better outcomes from that. And one of the things that I, and they're very hesitant to condemn, like not that I'm asking them to like take a pledge, but they're very <laughs> hesitant to want to change yes. and not do corporal punishment themselves, right? Like they're like, well, you know, I know that it worked for me. I turned out okay. So I'm going to do the same with my kids. And I will say I'm seeing this a lot less in my undergraduates, even 10 years later. But what I point out to them is like, my parents brought me home from the hospital I was in my grandma's arms in the front seat of the car, right? <laughs> no one would do that now. Right. Right? Like, right. I turned out fine. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? But, like, what were they thinking right now? Right. I mean, and that's the same thing. Is I really mean it, right? Like, we thought yeah. as a society, and many parts of our society still do believe, that the way to get children to behave is to spank them. And so that's yeah. what you do, right? Like, but when we get information that maybe that's not great, you know, we can change without condemning what people did in the past, right? right? And condemning what our exactly. parents did in the past. And also just thinking of our parents as like complicated people, right? Yeah. Like, and like, just like we are complicated people. And I am sure you have done things in your relationship with your partner, with your mother, with your friends that you aren't proud of, right? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean you're a bad partner or a bad son or a bad friend, right? It, may, it means like, you know. Like, I'm human. Yes. We all, and it's like, it's the problem is when you are unable to recognize it and you don't make efforts not to do it, but we're all going to do it. You know, we all have sort of the, both of those things. Like we're not, yeah, we're not infallible. And so yeah. I just feel like, yeah, when we talk about our childhoods, we're often talking about things, you know, oftentimes things that weren't great come up because Oftentimes they're the things that we kind of remember really clearly, you know, mm -hmm. um, but they're not condemnations of the entire thing, you know, right. we turn out just fine. Yeah. On think, average. On average. <laughs> I think it's good to have that dialogue, though. And I think we are coming to this point where we're more aware that people and, and people, including myself, I cling on to things that sometimes are from the past or from my family's heritage or what we just do. And, and, and I question them now, like, maybe that's not the best option. Maybe it's not great to drive in the front car with the baby, <laughs> but in the South, that's what we do. You know, we, there's, it's, it's just common, you know, and maybe some of these things, yes, we turn out fine, but we could do better. And because we don't need to think of ourselves as the individual, we need to think of ourselves as the herd. And if we make this rule or make these decisions for the herd, overall, the population, it's going to do better. And maybe trying to take a step back from our individual minds occasionally is what I try to do. And what I try to promote is that we are 
a country, we're a world, we're a global civilization trying to progress. Like, let's work as a unit, you know? Let's think as a unit. We don't always have to be a me, me, me. It's something I struggle with, though. You know, I think we all do. Yes, it's so hard. It's such a balance, right? Everything's such a balance. Because as soon as I was thinking about that, I went back to also thinking about, you know, how we were talking about how, like, anything can go too far in one yeah, direction, right? for sure. So then exactly. I also think about, like, how parenting today, like, all of these things that were like, you can't do this, you can't do that, it's too risky, it's blah, blah, you know, and it's like, whoa, well, you know, well, like, yes. clearly there are areas in which we've taken this way too far, right? right. And Absolutely. we're like, oh yeah, you, your kid needs to be in a car seat, right? Like car seats are good and sure. we should have people use them, they should use them most of the time, that seems reasonable. But to the idea of like, children up to the age of 13 can't walk down the street by themselves <laughs> in their neighborhood. <laughs> and it's crazy. like, okay, that seems, you know, yeah. that, that is, you're right. Something could happen to right. them as they, they walk down the live. street. Like again, it's all this like risk thing, right? But we yeah. but we just we want I think, you know, it's just hard because like we want everybody to be like we want it to be okay. We want to reduce right. risk wherever we can and we hear about it and we're like, No, 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 don't do that. You know, like yeah. you know, and then and then people just end up stuck in a place where it's like, I can't do all these things that right. people want me like are telling me I need to do. And you know, for me, the most beautiful part of humanity is that sometimes we're okay and sometimes we're not okay. And you have to have those not okay moments to develop, you know, whether you're two years old, whether you're five years old, eight years old, 12, 15, 18, you have to have risks in your life somewhere because that's how you mature. And so I do look at kids now. I think there was some uh, literature that's been posted that um, kids are getting less interested in driving themselves around. There's less kids applying for driver's license. When I was 15, I was the first person in the line on my birthday at 15 to get my learner's permit because that meant one year later I would get my license and when I got my license it was I'm an adult now you know that's all I wanted as a kid is just that freedom but there's I didn't have any fear of of the big world around me I didn't have social media or the news constantly telling me how scary everything was it was probably just as scary as it is today you know I don't I mean there's different variables there of course but um you know, I turned out fine. And most people my age turned out fine. So it's just, it's, you know, it's hard because like you mentioned, we want to keep our kids safe. We want to keep everyone in our community safe, but are we keeping them safe by protecting them from every little thing, you know? And, and that's... Yeah. And it's just, it's all just, yeah, it's risk and reward and like, <laughs> and finding the, the right balance. And I think it's, it's you know, and the other thing is, is every kid is different, right? Yes. So it's like, you've got the, like my brother is like a risk seeker and sure. a, like a, and I am the exact opposite. <laughs> and uh, and my parents, I think I had, I have very excellent parents, would really approach it differently, where they would try to pull back my brother a little bit, and they would kind of like push, push me, <laughs> right? Because because I'd be like, I'm not gonna drink, and they're like, Well, drinking can be fun. <laughs> I love your parents, first of all. It's very real. That's a great conversation to have, you know, because. There can be two sides, and not everyone needs to hear drinking can be fun, but there are people who do need to hear My it. My brother figured it out on his own. <laughs> exactly, so he's good. <laughs> and they were, you know, it can be too, you know, they yes. can go bad places, like, <laughs> let's pull back there. But me, right. they were like, yeah, maybe be less rigid, you know, maybe, yeah. Um, maybe, yeah. Different maybe. kids, different strategies. Yeah, exactly. And that's, and I think also, like, different people, different, different strategies, strategies, right? And. And, you know, even different times in our own lives, different mm -hmm. strategies and yeah. But being able to connect with people, I think is just one of the most important things we can do. But also yes. understanding that like, we're all gonna make mistakes while we're doing it, cause it's hard. Like it's actually complicated. It's and even if I ask you what you want, 
you're probably not going to necessarily really know the answer. Yeah, that's true. I think this was certainly one of the most fun topics and talk. I'm I'm serious. This was incredible. I would love to have you back. Well, and I feel like <laughs> we have plenty to talk Clearly, I have no problem talking. <laughs> Same. So we're a match made in heaven. Um, but so thankful for you for coming and I look forward to your return. <laughs> Great. Well, it was very nice to meet you. Awesome. Thank you. Add us on Instagram at Primary Care Pod. Catch up on past episodes and don't miss out on new ones. Subscribe to the podcast on YouTube, iTunes, and Spotify at Primary Care Pod.